If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is a community-supported show backed mostly by listeners like you. If you're not listening in for the first time and you aren't low-income or struggling financially, we'd love to get your direct support so we can keep diving into these critical discussions, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you believe in and value this work, you can chip in starting at just $2 at greendreamer.com support. And if you are a current or past supporter, I see you and... We are so grateful. Thank you so much. And unless we have that rich diversity, if there's like some big problem with the main corn varieties that we're growing in the Midwest or something, you know, we need to be able to cross fertilize and, you know, improve uh, those more commercial varieties, strengthen those varieties. So it's like that kind of movement of a genetic material that's so important and is a kind of central part of biodiversity that we don't consider very often. Our guest today is Dr. Lauren Baker, the Director of Programs at the Global Alliance for the Future of Food, which is a strategic alliance of philanthropic foundations working together and with others to transform global food systems now and for future generations. As they say, food systems reform requires new and better solutions at all levels and all scales. So they aim to do this through a systems level approach and deep collaboration among philanthropy, researchers, grassroots movements, the private sector, farmers and food systems workers, indigenous peoples, government and policymakers. Dr. Baker is a wealth of wisdom and today we'll be talking about things like the importance of seed biodiversity, what true cost accounting is all about and why it's necessary, and more. So Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I think the first time I became interested in this was many years ago, 
when I was working in Toronto and I had just graduated from my master's, of course, didn't have a job and went to visit this warehouse, which is, which is a social enterprise um, in Toronto. It was connected to a well-known organization called Foodshare. I climbed up onto the roof and there were people growing food on the roof. And then I looked out and there were like rooftops everywhere, mm-hmm. <laughs> empty. And I thought, oh my gosh, okay, like maybe I could do this. I could, you know, be an urban farmer. And so I started in this journey and then we started a company growing ecological seedlings and selling seeds, heritage, varieties of seeds, often endangered varieties of seeds that we were kind of collecting from other seed companies and other gardeners. And it just, you know, the stories that were embedded in those seeds just fascinated me. And so that was, you know, the beginning of my interest in the connection between cultural diversity, you know, the human story as connected to seeds through and the environmental story. And then I was working in in Toronto and through this uh, not-for-profit organization, Food Share, I became involved in all this community gardening work. And those community gardens were incredible expressions of this plant diversity. So people had brought all of these seeds from all over the world and were planting out, you know, all of these plants that were and food plants that were important for them from where they were from originally, like Bangladesh, Vietnam, the Caribbean. And it was really fantastic to talk to all of those gardeners and, you know, all these little hidden pockets across Toronto in community gardens and learn, you know, about their stories and learn about this incredible, rich diversity of seeds and culinary traditions that they were connected to. So, you know, I think resilience resilient agricultural biodiversity and resilient seed systems are are so connected to culinary traditions and the way um, we eat and live in the world and yes go you know much farther than the organic produce that's on our store and so it's been really interesting to learn about those connections and that kind of dynamic diversity Mm. which is about the relationship between people and their food over this time that they've cultivated those crops. So through true cost accounting and your organization's research in this area, can we definitively say that paying investing more upfront for our health is actually cost saving and more affordable than buying cheap food and cheap products, using a lot of agrochemicals with uh, monocultures? that may have higher yields and et cetera. Can we definitively say that paying more upfront will result in real cost savings when we really take into account all of these true costs? I guess your question makes me think of a couple of things. One is when you talk about paying more upfront, I think of me going to a grocery store or farmer's market and choosing to pay more for an organic apple than a conventional apple. And I I don't think, I think that's one kind of choice um, that can be made. I think the way that we're applying true cost accounting is really to look at the full system and to look at the incentives and subsidies, the financial flows that support 
particular forms of agriculture that are leading to poor health from a public health and a population health perspective and shifting those to really invest in food systems that result in long-term health and well-being in animal, planetary, and human health. So it's less from an individual standpoint and more from, you know, how do we really begin to shift the system that right now is kind of propping up particular forms of agriculture that aren't really very healthy. Right. So you're really taking a step back to look at this whole system and the grander scheme of things. And most people today know about biodiversity loss, but I think a lot a, a lot of people think about that more so in the context of the wildlife out there and the conservation of endangered species, not necessarily in the context of food. So I'm wondering what we would miss out on if this conversation of biodiversity loss excluded discussions of seed biodiversity from our agricultural system. I think there's kind of two two things again, like one is just to really think about conservation of, of wildlife and food security as, as really intertwined. So let's, you know, look at that quickly first. We have this project called Beacons of Hope, which looks at food systems transformation. And this is a project that it really understands that this transformation is taking place right now in communities all around the world that community leaders, business people, governments are actually trying to change the system and doing really interesting, innovative things in that regard. And um, just to link to the kind of conservation, wildlife conservation, food security initiative, there's this really neat project in Zambia, Comico, um, and the founder was really passionate about conservation of elephant habitat. And, you know, these elephants were being poached by local local communities who, of course, were then selling the ivory to into international markets. And when he was trying to figure out this problem and trying to figure out why folks were killing elephants, he realized that, of course, they're doing it because they need, you know, ways to feed their families. And so he started this whole agriculture project that was focused on food security focused on um, improving livelihoods, and the poaching has completely stopped. He started a business called Go Wild, and it's like widely available. It's like peanut butter and different products, um, a national brand that's widely available across the country. And this project and this business initiative has really upheld as a way to think about the intertwined relationship between agriculture, food security, and um habitat preservation, wildlife conservation. Seed biodiversity, it's true, is not thought about when we talk about kind of biodiversity loss. Often we're talking about these kind of main big species, but food plant biodiversity loss and the loss of, you know, rare breeds of animals, domesticated animals are equally problematic. And the reason why were why that is so problematic for food security is because you know unless we have this like rich diversity of corn available in Mexico so Mexico is the center of origin for corn there are like 40 or 50 native land races of corn available there being grown by local farmers the campesino communities and unless we have that rich diversity 
if there's like some big problem with the main corn varieties that we're growing in the Midwest or something, you know, we need to be able to cross fertilize and, you know, improve uh, those com more commercial varieties, strengthen those varieties. So it's like that kind of movement of a genetic material that's so important and is a kind of central part of biodiversity that we don't consider mm. very often. So we just talked about the importance of seed biodiversity. What exactly has been happening to this diversity over the past decades? And what's been the primary drivers behind this trend? Well, seed um, biodiversity has been eroding over the past decades. There are a couple of things that are driving um, that erosion. So one is the kind of monoculture mono agriculture that is kind of disrupting local traditional agriculture and replacing those seeds and agricultural systems with sort of imported seeds and imported varieties. Sometimes that isn't so bad. I mean, a lot of times local farmers want to, you know, improve their varieties. That's part of this kind of genetic movement that happens globally this exchange of, you know, genetic material of varieties. So part of that is good. But when it's, you know, a sort of export model of agriculture, that's displacing local traditional varieties, I think it's really problematic. So that's one driver. Another driver is consolidation of um, seed companies over time. So, you know, if you look at a map of this consolidation, kind of a network map of this consolidation, there were hundreds of seed companies all across, for example, the U.S. 60 years ago, and um, now many of them are, you know, owned or simply have disappeared. And uh, there are like five main seed companies that control all of those agricultural inputs. And the third driver is that most of the research and development that is funded by those companies and by larger research institutes is focused on, you know, a couple of key varieties key species. So, you know, corn, uh, rice, wheat, there is a resurgence of interest right now in these kind of lost and forgotten crops, but certainly not enough research dollars going into them to kind of uh, make a difference in terms of um, preserving those varieties, strengthening those seed systems, and promoting agricultural biodiversity at a very wide scale. Do we know how much of our varieties that have been lost are are actually extinct? Oh, I don't have those numbers um, at my fingertips, but I think in about the last 80 years, we've lost about over 90% of the variety in our food. Mm. So like and lost for good. Yeah. And, you know, it's possible, this is where, you know, you can differentiate between kind of endangered and extinct. It's possible that some of those varieties exist out there in the world and they exist in a couple of places. So they do exist in seed keepers' pockets and seed seed banks. They exist in community seed banks around the world. And they exist in, you know, our larger seed banking system. And that's great. The way that I understand that diversity though is that it needs to be a living diversity mm. and a dynamic diversity that I talked about before. So, of course, we can tap into those seed banks and we can begin to grow out 
those varieties if they're endangered. And that's wonderful. And a lot of people are doing that, reviving these lost or forgotten varieties and beginning to cultivate them and propagate them. And there's, you know, an interest in that from the consumer side too. But it is that whole mix that really like the interest from consumers and eaters and people with wanting those crops because they have special recipes that need those variety of beans that really perpetuates the diversity in a living way and makes it dynamic versus, you know, a laboratory situation where you're just sort of growing out, growing out seeds for, you know, really commercial use. It's that living diversity, I think, that we need to strive for. As we're going about striving for this goal, what are the largest forces threatening this work that is currently threatening the preservation and re-diversification of our food varieties? Well, really, it's the model of industrial food systems that threatens this kind of model of biodiversity in in agriculture and in our food system. And, you know, my understanding of industrial agriculture, and this is, you know, nothing new to, to you and to your listeners, is, is that it's about a set of practices that, you know, inherently limit biodiversity. So it's, you know, monoculture, agriculture at large scale. It's about GMOs or, you know, real hybrid seeds sort of planted uh, at large scale that are dependent on a whole suite of inputs chemical fertilizers and pesticides designed for those seeds in particular. So that's like a package, you know, industrial animal agriculture, and then highly processed foods, which are also, you know, only possible with these kind of more uniform varieties. So it's that kind of set of practices, industrial agriculture practices, that is inherently limiting agricultural biodiversity versus, you know, really diverse food systems that are place-based, that are expressions of cultural diversity and really distinct ecologies that have, you know, their own kind of flavor and are really like truly agriculturally biodiverse. Mm. So maybe in our efforts to diversify our food varieties, that necessarily has to come with the decentralization of power within the food and agricultural industry. Absolutely. So, you know, at any of our work, whenever we're talking about, you know, industrial agriculture or food systems transformation, power and addressing power is at the heart of that. So it comes up over and over again. Of course, it takes shape in all of these different ways. So on the one hand, we talked a little bit about subsidies and policies that promote, in a sense, you know, particular forms of agriculture, and that's about power. There's, you know, concentrated ownership, and that's about power. And then there's this kind of export 
model of agriculture too, you know, which is being promoted through, for example, the Green Revolution technologies. And that's also about uh, power and a legacy of colonialism, you know, shifting food systems. And the reverse of that is this beautiful kind of historic, you know, exchange of which, you know, power courses through it all, but exchange of um, food plants over millennia, you know, people have always exchanged seeds, they've always exchanged recipes and culinary traditions. And those traditions spread, you know, throughout continents, in really interesting uh, ways. And that's another form of power. And I think it's that sort of decentralized power that you're talking about that we want to promote and enhance. And that kind of power is really about building resiliency through the system. And I think we're seeing that more clearly um, now, especially with uh, COVID and all of the associated uh, food systems challenges that we're experiencing. Right. So given that our current policies sort of encourage and give way to monopolization within the industry, how exactly can we leverage policy to incentivize and encourage seed diversity, preservation, and localized food systems? Well, we're working on a couple of initiatives that do this. Um, With a group, we convened a group of kind of seed leaders, you know, people work on seed systems, either in the private sector, community based seed systems, researchers, etc, etc, a whole like really kind of diverse group of people from all over the world, in Oaxaca, Mexico, um, a couple of years ago, and that group is uh, just starting to think about principles that would guide national seed policy development, that would promote resilient seed systems. So this is tricky work because it does involve the private sector, but it also recognizes the incredible importance of these resilient and diverse seed systems all over the world. And that, you know, we don't want to kind of polarize this kind of these seed systems. We want to recognize that they are intertwined and interrelated, and we want to kind of strengthen and give power to um, local community-based farmer-managed seed systems. Mm. So we're developing, you know, that set of principles and uh, with hopes that they will guide national policy development. So then we would see policy that um, doesn't contribute to the erosion of agricultural biodiversity and resilient seed systems, but actually sees uh, those seed systems as inherently important to the future of a nation's uh, food security and food sovereignty. Are there any success stories that you can share with us? Maybe a community that went from being reliant on a globalized food system to one where they've really built up their own community-based food system that prioritizes seed and food variety. One example that comes to mind is an organization called Masapag in the Philippines. And they're featured as one of our beacons of hope, um, you know, as a real inspiration for food systems transformation. They were founded several decades ago. I think they were uh, worried about the incursion of monocultural rice varieties coming into the Philippines and organized farmers, farmers organizations mobilized so that they could confront these sort of improved varieties 
and also work with the research institutions in you know participatory collaborative ways to uh, strengthen their own varieties and improve their own local traditional varieties. That work has proven to be really resilient over time. So I think there are a couple of factors that that lead this to be a, a good example. Like first of all, in the kind of cyclone hurricane season, those um, rice paddies are you know, they fare better, they're more resilient, they're stronger and provide better yields. And also the sort of social capital and cohesion of those strong farmer organizations mean that people can kind of share information, exchange seeds, develop their own kind of networks that are really a core part of strengthening agricultural biodiversity and seed systems. So, of course, all of this is about localized, more resilient food systems through seed biodiversity. But by extension, how might rebuilding these localized seed systems support, for example, the larger goal of addressing climate change and our social inequities? Well, I think all of these things are are deeply interrelated. You know, I think when local communities are able to to organize and strengthen their food systems, they are more resilient to kind of climate impacts, to weather shocks and changing weather patterns. And also coupled with that, I think is, you know, a real interest to kind of build local strength in terms of like addressing inequalities, addressing, you know, structural racism in the food system. And so we're seeing this work being like really brought to the forefront right now, I think, uh, globally, the interrelationships between all of these things. And COVID has exposed this. So COVID is a public health emergency, but it is also, you know, an ecological emergency. And it's foreshadowing our future climate emergencies. And, you know, what we predicted about climate impacts and what we know about their impacts and the way that they're being faced uh, globally is that the most vulnerable communities are impacted in the greatest ways. And in Toronto, you know, my community in Toronto, um, this is certainly the case. So in a map of Toronto about where COVID has the greatest concentrations, it is in communities that are vulnerable, that um, are poor and are racialized and those communities are suffering disproportionately. And so what gives me hope is that those communities are also incredibly strong and are organizing in amazing ways at the community level to respond. You know, I think the projects like uh, Black Creek Community Farm and the Jane Finch Community in Toronto are showing that they're the ones who are able to kind of respond within a network of community organizations to these challenges. And so we really need to think about how to strengthen this kind of community-based work uh, moving forward. And finally, what are some things that you think our listeners can do to support this goal and the preservation of seed diversity? Ah, well, um, one thing that people can do is look for unusual varieties and learn about the stories behind those seeds and begin to plant them out. So that's, you know, something that you can do at an individual level. At a more collective level, you can learn about all the amazing organizations out there that are working on this issue. 
get connected to them and, um, you know, learn about their great work. Wherever you are based, that work is happening, that work to, you know, grow out interesting varieties to save that neat variety of melon that's, you know, uh, has a long history in your area to use a particular kind of wheat that's a heritage wheat to make bread. All of this is happening. It's happening on our farms and in our community gardens and in our personal gardens. And if you begin to kind of dig around, um, you'll find an incredible richness of resources out there. At the political level, too, I think this is where, you know, really thinking about food systems transformation is, is important, you know, being critical of industrial agriculture models, being aware of how they disrupt uh, local regional food systems and how they contribute to the broader inequities in our, in our system. So Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Lauren's work at the Global Alliance for the Future of Food, be sure to head to www.futureoffood.org. And you can also follow Lauren on Twitter at Lauren O. Baker and the organization at Future of Food Org. And you can also follow Lauren on Instagram at Lauren X Food and on Facebook with her name, Lauren Baker. All of this will be linked in our show notes as well that you can find at greendreamer.com. Lauren, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today and your expertise and inspirations. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Well, Camille, I just want to say thank you to you too. And right now, um, we're really seeing the power of kind of organizing and connecting in new and different ways. And I, I think, you know, your work and your podcast is part of that. So I think that's one way to stay in, inspired for sure. Well, we've come full circle and are coming to a close here. I know you hear me say this all the time, but having your direct support as the listener is really important for our independent platform to continue and so that we can keep exploring a lot of these topics often sidelined by mainstream media. In the United States, we know that 90% of media is controlled by just six corporations, which I think is extremely problematic and why I personally try to financially support the outlets that I read and listen to. And I highly encourage you to support the independent platforms that you read, listen to, watch, and etc. if you can as well, whether that is Green Dreamer or something else. But yeah, if you can, I'd love to invite you to join us on Patreon starting at just $2 at greendreamer.com slash support. Today's song feature is Politician Man by Adrian Sutherland, which is pretty timely. Our elections are coming up here in the United States. I hope you are already registered to vote. And I also want to thank our audio producer, Scott Donnell, and our post-production content manager, Elizabeth Joy. We appreciate your support so much. Thank you for taking this time to continue learning with us, and I'll catch you soon in the next episode. Break me off again.